I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed Podcast today. And I have a very special guest, comedian and writer, Michael Rowe. Thank you, everybody. Don't rush to the stage, please. Somebody will get hurt. You know, Mike, I have people on here, and I kind of take a different approach. I try to interview people from the ground up, from the foundation up, and just trying to get a little bit about who they are and what they're about and what makes them tick. And, you know, you've had a long career in comedy, and you started at a very young age. You know, thinking about that and looking back on that, what was what was the internal drive for you at such a young age to get into comedy business? Um, well, first it was when I was really young, we're talking grammar school, maybe, yeah, mostly grammar school, where it, it became that time in life where do you get to hang out with the cool kids, right? And even in, even like, eighth grade or so when kids started to smoke this was you know 70s and even drink like start to learn about that and i didn't want to do it any of that stuff but i wanted to hang out with the cool kids but i found out quickly that if i'm funny they bring me into the group like that's some good positive reinforcement um yeah. uh, so i got to hang out with the cool kids by being funny and, it, and then it just kind of kept expanding from there it's like getting laughs becomes like a drug <clears throat> and mm. so that drew me to stand-up comedy, and mm -hmm. I'm still living in my hometown in Waterbury, Connecticut, this little factory town. And this is so long ago that it was before every, you know, bar and car wash and bowling alley was a comedy club. Like, they, this was before the comedy. So I'm like 16, 17 years old, and I would walk into a bar, and if there was a band playing, I would ask the, uh, the, the manager guy or whatever, I said, when they go on a break, could I just go on stage and tell jokes? And most of the time, they're like, uh, I guess so. <laughs> so I'm just this kid now just doing, <laughs> mumbling these jokes out, but like, I, I loved it. You know, you hear that a lot. You think about that feeling you had of um, that those laughs becoming a drug. What type of person is that makeup look like? I don't know if anybody's ever tried to put it in a category or whatever it is, but what would you call that type of person? Well, I think it makes up for a lot of the things you maybe didn't get, you know, whether it's respect, you think, or if I was not like a fighter guy, I was not a sports guy, you know, but then I found this thing that like almost brought total acceptance. It almost fixed all those things I didn't have. So it's like, all right, I'm getting to know this guy in me. I, this is a part of me that I want to nurture. And it's the thing that fixed a lot of things in my life, I guess, you know, emotionally and otherwise. But it's just a fun thing, too. It's it's kind of like, you know, I, I, again, I wasn't into sports, so I, I maybe liken it to like the sports hero in school who's scoring the touchdowns and becomes revered and respected in some ways. So I'm sure that was part of it, you know? I mean, and I think, too, is like once you find that, right, and that person finds confidence, then it becomes a, a voice, right? You want to have more of a voice and a, more of an expression, if you will? Yeah. Is it the confidence puts that behind the, the voice where you really start to expand that thought process, making people laugh? 
I think so. I, it does. It is a source of confidence for sure. And it, there's something very powerful about it that you are able to control feelings and emotions of a room or a arena full of people. That is pretty powerful, you know. And and when did you? You know, starting at a young age, when did you start to feel some of that confidence and that success? Uh, How long were you in the business? Um, I studied stand-up so much that I knew that I was going to be bad for a while. <laughs> so that was like, it's to me, it's like it didn't matter because I'm on the ladder. I'm doing it and I'm focused. And I, the fact that I'm doing it and bombing didn't matter because I was doing it. And part of the uh -huh. big push was when I was 17 or whatever and still living in my hometown and, you know, had my bedroom in the panel basement, I would record comedians, just get my little cassette player and record them and listen and study them and learn the musicality of it and what's funny about it. I would try myself. Uh, I just steal jokes and do them to friends and just to learn, you know. And of course, my favorite was Rodney Dangerfield back then. And he was on The Tonight Show all the time back, you know, back in the days of Johnny Carson. And mm -hmm. uh, so one day, uh, Dangerfield uh, is on the panel sitting with Johnny. And it's one of the few times where he kind of got personal and, and talked about how he started in the Catskills, uh, but he was selling aluminum siding. But he went by the name of Jack Roy. And he also said that he had a comedy club in Manhattan called Dangerfields. So I thought, you know, I know his style so well. What if I sent jokes to Jack Roy at Dangerfields? I figured that would get some attention. So mm -hmm. I got my mom's big clunky manual typewriter and I just kind of typed out a page and a half of jokes or two pages of jokes and just what I thought might appeal to him. And I sent him to Jack Roy at Dangerfields in New York. Mm -hmm. and of course, a couple of weeks go by and I'm like, I kind of forgot about it. I had no expectations, but uh, you take a swing. But then one night, like after dinner, I'm in my basement and my and the phone rings. Mike, there's a, a Rodney on the phone for you. I'm like what? And my you know seventeen year old squeaky voice. Hello. Uh, hey, Mike. It's Rodney. How you doing? You okay? You all right? Hey, how are you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Hi. Uh, well, yeah. I got your jokes. You know they're really good. They're really funny. You know, but they're not for me. But these are good jokes. He kept me on the phone for like fifteen minutes and explained comedy to to me of like what he knows because I said I want to do stand up. You know, don't come to my club it's no good you know and uh he told me about the improv and catch a rising star that was around at the time and you know go to those clubs and he told me you know he said look it took me eight years to find out what was funny about me he said he said but if you're going in just expect that so first of all at that age mm -hmm. to get the acknowledgement from rodney dangerfield was holy cow it's like that's a nice stamp of approval that's a big vote of confidence he in fact sent me a yeah. letter like Two weeks later, a handwritten letter reminding me, it's, if you do this, it's going to take a long time, but stick with it. And, you know, so that was kind of the, the crossing of the Rubicon, I guess. You know, that was like the beginning of, you know, saying to my mom, I'm going to do this for my career. Now, I've talked, I've talked to a couple of these guys. I talked to them. I had Mark Schiff on the show. Mm -hmm. was, he, was he around your same time period as you? Mark Schiff was, in fact, I'll try to tell the story quickly. Okay. In Connecticut, when I was figuring out how do I go to New York City and how do I become a comic, there was like a, a local radio station had a stand-up comics contest. And the winner was you got to audition at the Improv in New York. And I won uh -huh. the contest. And all of a sudden, there's a limo picking up me and my girlfriend, taking us to New York City, going to dinner. And then we're going to audition that night. I'm going to audition that night at the Improv. And mm -hmm. like, holy cow, it's like, how did I, you know, and, it, and it's a packed house and they're putting me on at prime time. But Mark Schiff was 
first person that night, the first person ever to introduce me on stage at the improv. So, wow. yeah, so he holds a, a place in my heart. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Well, the reason I brought him up is, you know, you know, he was talking about him and, and Seinfeld and, you know, they were writers, right? Did you, when you were on stage, did you know you were a writer too? I mean, did you know you were a full-blown writer? Well, I was... Storyteller? I I was so in love with stand-up and... But not that long into it, I kind of reached a point where I, I figured out that I'm not going to be, you know, George Carlin. I'm not going to be Robert Klein. So what happens? <clears throat> what happens when I'm 50? I don't want to be on cruise ships. I mean, I didn't like traveling that much when I was in my 20s. I didn't like the road that much. So I, I kind of had a reckoning where I had always been kind of writing along the way, even for other comedians. In fact, when I got to New York, I was writing more jokes for Rodney Dangerfield and other people like Rip Taylor and stuff like that. And, and I was liking writing. So I just reached a point where like, I'm going to start to segue into writing. I think that's going to be my career. Um, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In fact, my stand-up, you know, I kind of became more interested in making the comics in the back of the room laugh more than the audience. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the signs were there. Well, that's a that's an interesting thing because I was, you know, I was kind of, when I got into the comedy, you know, I was kind of a disruptor and broke a guy and took him to Just for Laughs with a social media blueprint, right? Totally different mm -hmm. from your perspective of where you came from. And you, you, you made a statement there about trying to appease industry. Do you think sometimes in the comedy space that people get caught up in an environment where they try to appease industry and maybe forget who's paying the bills? I always say, you know, who's paying the bills or who, you, who you're trying to tell that story to? Certainly as a writer, <clears throat> and especially I've been in development now more than ever since COVID. So I've been working with teams of people and developing stuff with studios and then going to networks and going to, you know, streaming. And I catch myself all too often, like the notes are a lot of the times they're not helpful or they don't quite make sense. So you're trying to figure them out. And, and then it just becomes, you're trying to hammer everything into what the network people want and then at some mm -hmm. point you end up with something you don't even know what you're writing anymore so mm -hmm. this focus in development in these last few years i've learned a lot that i have to just tr stay true to my voice as much as possible otherwise you know i'm i'm in a place where i'm i just get lost and, you know this, that's that's a uh, discussion i had as well with mark about dilution dilution a story right is there is a you know 
he was telling me about universal comedy, right? And making universal comedy and finding the right pieces to make universal comedy. You think that threshold of finding right pieces for universal comedy is is at its max now where we can't we can't stop the pendulum. We're trying to find something that's not there. No. I think what I've been trying to do, and I think what has to happen, and this is what happens with the most successful people. In fact, um, I started with Chris Rock. We were we were pretty close friends back then, and I'm still in touch with him once in a while. And he talked a little bit about how he found his way. It's sort of a complicated story, but it came down to, like, he always thought he was funny. And for the longest time, there was a disconnect. He's like, I don't, the audience isn't liking it. I don't, you know, and, and he forever tried to figure it out until one night he was at the comic strip and there was just sort of this swath of people laughing and he figured that's kind of what i gotta do is just not try to please everyone just find myself and even if it's just that small even if it's a small group of people who are gonna like me it's it's who i am and that's what matters it it got to the point where he felt like even after saturday night live he thought his career was over so he just said Mm -hmm. i want to be the best stand-up i can be that's all i can do and whatever happens happens whoever finds me finds me and then he just became himself and people slowly were drawn to him. And that's kind of the key. It's like just finding that fingerprint in yourself that's going to draw mm-hmm. people in. You know, you just got to, whatever your point of view, weird or if it's stupid or if it's just very dry or what, you know, it's just, it's about finding yourself. And that's the key to it. Kind of weird you say that. You talk about social media. People don't realize it's about sensitivities, right? And, uh, you know, People are attracted by senses. So probably in that experience with Chris Rock, if he brought something from his core foundation and that resonated, you know, with, with a group of people, then he should have been able to double down on that. Reverse engineer the thought process comedians have today. They might find a, a quicker path, you think, maybe? It's bravery of of just going, I'm giving you everything I have that I think is interesting about me. And there's that, you know, there's the risk of like, if if I give you everything I have, and if it doesn't find itself, then I have nowhere else to go. So that's kind of the bravery of it, I think. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. just revealing yourself and taking that risk. Because even, you know, my experience in writing half-hour shows and different things, part of what is always the success of half-hours, I believe, is those shows come from someone's point of view. It's very specific, and it's personal. And what typically happens is, as you're developing shows, you have to dance with all the the executives who all have to have notes and ideas and thoughts. And that's a lot of the times why a lot of shows aren't successful, because they get hammered down, or they they get derailed, you know, and the person who created it loses their vision. So that's why a lot of the more successful shows even happen by accident. They're suddenly sneak through without a lot of input before it gets off the ground. I mean, the famous story mm-hmm. of Seinfeld, it was not developed through normal half-hour network channels. It was called a variety mm-hmm. show because <clears throat> it had Seinfeld doing stand-up in it. So nobody, like, gave them notes. I mean, there was one time where the network had, like, a big note, and they gave it to Larry. And Larry, who I also started with Larry in New York. <clears throat> but Larry was great because when the network came to him and said, we got these notes and the way we think you should do it, then Larry was like, well, I'm leaving. I don't want to do it. I'm leaving. Larry just said, I'll, I'll go to New York. I'll do stand-up. I don't care. And to have that power, <laughs> you know, to say, do what you want. I'm, I'm out. And then they brought him back yeah. in, kept his voice in the show. <clears throat> Why wouldn't networks realize that? You know, I think if it comes from more of a 
pure source, right? And it comes from the heart. Why wouldn't networks say, hey, we believe in you. It's a people's business. We know you're going to be relatable in this space. Do what you because do. Because then, then people start to go, well, I guess they don't need me. And then they're out of a job. <laughs> and, uh, and right now, TV is like the Wild West. Everything is changing and it's in flux. And the, fortunately, right now, a lot of decisions are being made out of fear. You know, executives mm-hmm. don't know where TV is going or what's expected of them and what the new dynamic is. And so decisions are made mostly about you know, what's the best decision to keep my job? Uh, and that just makes it more difficult. Like, I've never had my own show on the air, really. So, you know, when I'm pitching to a show, they're already not that interested if it's just me. So I now have yeah. to, you know, attach a big studio or if I can attach a big actor or that sort of stuff that's going to make their choice of saying yes a little safer. So that's very hard. Well, you know, the other thing they need to realize, too, studying human behavior is tone always works. Right? Yeah. And I think if you find a tone that works, you shouldn't forget about it, you know, because it always will work. Why do you think old music keeps, you know, coming back? Tone always works. Yes. You have any thoughts about that? Again, it comes back to what I'm saying, really, because tone ultimately tone is produced by someone's point of view you know yeah. uh, the 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 truth you know if there's truth to it you know it, it's sort of like it's sort of like why i like jazz i mean cuz jazz to me is like the emotion just coming right out out through the horn you know what i mean um mm-hmm. and as much as i talk about it you know i still for as long as i've been doing it find it difficult to get there i'm still searching yeah. to be as truthful to my voice you know uh it's easier for some people, but I'm, you know. Well, what would, what do we not know about micro? What do we have? What have we not seen? What would be is outside of what we've seen? It's funny. Uh, it's, I almost have the uh, same thing with Chris Rock of like a disconnect where I write these half hour and even a few hour long pilots that are true to my life and they seem to not be connecting. You know, it's like, what, what, what gears are missing? What's, you know, because I, I look at them and I go, well, this is kind of heartfelt stuff. And this is what's interesting to me. And this is the show I would like to see on TV. This is something I would watch. You know, you kind of go through all the checklists of what to you makes it good. Mm -hmm. So now, even after all this time, it's like you get lost. It's like, is it, are they just not good scripts or do I have to keep fighting for it and getting it to the right people or who's making the decision though? Like, I think you're weighing, you're probably weighing that thought process too much on fractional, you know, decision makers, <clears throat> you know, because, and, I, and this goes back to knowing sensitivities on social media. You know, if you shoot, if you take con, if you took a piece of content, you put that piece of content out in a space, right? Within a space, whatever genre you want to put it out in, right? You're, and you do that multiple times, you're going to start to get data back. It's going to tell you what type of person is liking that. So just because 10 people in a room may not like that voice of yours, maybe there's another way to proof the concept. And this is kind of what I tell everybody who's interested in, in getting into the writing game is as much as you have to learn to craft, you have to learn how to be your own agent and manager. Like I talked mm-hmm. to writer friends who are like yeah i haven't heard from my agent in six months but it's like well that's not really how it works you know you have to figure out your own ways in you have to figure out how to make your own context you you have to figure out how to get whatever you need to get read you know it's 
uh, if you wait for agents and managers, you're going to be in trouble. And so that's just it. It's like I, I have to pick the right projects I want to fight for and take out myself and show up at people's doors, so to speak. You know, you're dealing with a lot of gatekeepers. Even like even the last script I wrote, I, I a pilot, I. I liked and I give it to my manager and he's like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. So like, he's supposed to be my partner and he's sort of the gatekeeper, you know, and if he's not like, I, mm-hmm. I can't send this out, it, it, nobody wants to, you know, see a half hour about a basketball coach. And I'm like, really, isn't there the basketball thing every other year? You know? So when you get all this kind of mixed input on everything, you, it's easy to kind of lose your, your bearings, you know? So that's another part of yeah. it is like, well, let me stabilize what I'm, writing and doing and assess everybody's responses and then start to figure out all right what's the next best approach to to get out into the world and get seen and what's the best things i have that are going to get noticed and you know you start to just lose your your sense of like why you're you're doing this well i mean you're how many emmys have you won i've only i've won been nominated for i've been nominated for like seven or so I've won one. Mm-hmm. I've won a couple of uh, animation Emmys, uh, the uh, Annies. Yeah, a couple of Writers Guild Awards and that sort of stuff. You know. Well, you th- you think about that a guy who's won been nominated seven times for an Emmy, right? And he puts out a piece of work and he says, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Well, maybe you should listen to that guy. <laughs> if he's been nominated for seven, seven Emmys. I know, I know. But, but it's also, here's, it's not a, here's, you know. here's how writers work, typically. You know, it's like, yeah. if you work on a half hour show, here's how my mindset is. Like, you work on a half hour series and everybody helps. Everybody helps build your episode. And you go out and write the first draft and then it goes back in the room and gets fixed again so it's it's always a group effort in a half hour and i'm you know i'm a person where like if it goes great if the episode goes goes great i go yeah we all worked on it and then if it tanks i'm like oh shit man i screwed it up like i take the heat for yeah. it you know what i mean so that's just part of the uh, it's kind of like the a, a lot of writers i know who kind of think in those terms do you see a medium that would you know that you would approach that you haven't done before what do you think is the next step within the industry well at this time what's going on in the industry writing wise in hollywood is they're making sure they get that the diversity hires on shows and mm-hmm. uh that makes it harder for me um, I'm also not a young person, so I'm almost not that interested in just being on a staff on a half hour and working till two in the morning. I've done that a lot. So it's like now, like most of my career, it's always about reinventing yourself and shifting and figuring out. And so I've just been writing a lot of screenplays. You can be any mm-hmm. age, you know, not have to work in a room. Uh, in fact, I've been for fun. I've been writing Lifetime movies, you know, because they you know, I write them in three weeks and they shoot them in like two weeks. But it's just a fun exercise because there's no executives. There's nobody over your shoulder. You can just go. No editors on in your head. You just And at the same time, too, developing TV, you know, if I can get my own show on, then that's good, too. If I'm the guy in charge and, you know, uh, and it's a show that's my voice, then I'm, I, I would be happy to be in the half hour world, you know, especially animated. What uh, what? What is animation? I know that Netflix. We were de- when I developed that thing with with Claudia. She does great work, by the way. I mean, uh, and we had a good time to- developing the project. But I know right after that, Netflix had a 
a downturn on animation. Is there uh, a trend with animation? Is there something that is out there now or something that's not out there they're looking for? Or I don't know. Do you have any idea about that or are they just confused? Nobody knows anything ever. Nobody really knows what they want. I mean, there'll be meetings at yeah. places that say, we want a family half hour and stuff like that. I mean, that's fine, but I don't think you should chase anything ever. You know what I mean? It's sort of like going back to the idea of sticking to your own voice. It's like to write to write and say a half hour of anything because it, they're saying that's what the network wants, then you're already kind of starting at a deficit. So again, it's mm-hmm. always like, I truly believe that if you're creating something they'll like, regardless of what their own agenda is, it'll move forward. Mm-hmm. I remember pitching a half hour show with uh, an animated show with Nicolas Cage, right? So mm-hmm. we were on the Fox lot and, and sold it in the room, basically. And then as we're leaving, uh, I ran into another friend who just got out of another pitch and he said they passed on it because they said they're not buying half-hour animated shows where they just bought one mm-hmm. 10 minutes ago. You know what I mean? So you just can't chase anything. You just go with your gut. Well, I, when I pitched the animation, I developed this Southern Mom animation, and Netflix kind of put a pause on it with is some PC political stuff or whatever. But but when I went and initially talked to them, I talked about the numbers first before we even got to the creative. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's an angle, you know, if you had something where you could bring a, you know, talent that has numbers with value, that might be an easier way to get well, it done. Well, I think, too, though, you going in with uh, Claudia and Rough Draft, that's also, that alone is a leg up. That makes okay. them feel safer about making the decision because you're in a world where people know exactly what they're doing, mm-hmm. you know. So mm. that that seems more helpful than anything, you know, that or like. Gotcha. Walking in with Nicolas Cage is going to, people are going to go, let's, let's take a swing. You know, there's a safety to it. Yeah. Can we get back to the roots? I think it's overall, it's a version of a, how it's always been, you know, it's corporate mixing with creative and it's always going to be an mm-hmm. issue and a problem. And it's just a matter of playing the game, you know? So yeah. again, I feel like truth always wins out. Sometimes people will be lucky and get their show picked up, but if they're not ready or if the voice isn't there, ultimately it always lasts one or maybe two seasons. You know, it sort of mm-hmm. happens just through kismet or, you know, whatever. If the moving parts aren't right, then it, it just doesn't last. So again, it's like finding what's interesting about yourself and being able to figure out how to get it on the page and and, and figure out the verisimilitude of it, you know, figure out how people get to like it too, how we can get people to, to be drawn to you. Well, here's here's another direction. That, here's another direction I don't think a lot of people talk about in entertainment is the corporations, right? So if the corporations are paying the bills and their rules and regulations, as the world expands, their rules and regulations become more tight, right? And that puts more of a a clamp on a great talent like you, you think, and then the talent, it may not even have nothing to do with the talent. Then the talent beats themselves up. Those thoughts never come into play. Do you think that's, that has a little bit to do with as well, that, that tight net is getting tighter Um, from what they can and can't do or. Yeah. I mean, there's always a version of that and it's always, you know, uh, learning how to kind of ignore it. You have to just learn how to ignore all that stuff and, 
that's kind of the trick and maybe part of like why I had so much fun writing a Lifetime movie because it was an opportunity to not think of like, what are they like? What are the notes that always come down? What do they want to hear? What, you know, it was just like, I'm writing this fun, dumb movie and I'm having a blast, you know? So it's like almost bringing that mindset when I'm writing stuff for a network or stuff like that. I'm not having those voices in my head. I guess too, part of it is, you know, being a, you're in the business long enough, you hear all the notes and the reasons and the things they don't like and the things that always hit a wall. And then suddenly there's more, there's more little traps and ghosts in your head telling you what not to do and what to stay away from. So again, learning to ignore that stuff and fight through it and just learn how to, how to play. And this is, you just said something there about the thoughts in your head. When you're crafting a joke, or a character that has a, a certain tone and a certain voice one day, and then you're trying to craft a joke or another character that has a certain tone and voice on the second day, right? Same project. How do you do that? How do you create that joke for a different tone and each having its own tone? What is your thought process behind that? Well, that's just getting to know the character. Not only their characteristics, but the character. So that's also a sign of a very good show is if, if you can find the jokes from those characters without sounding like a joke, it's as much as possible, mm -hmm. not think about a joke, but think about what would be funny about what this person would say that you got to know. You know what I mean? What, mm -hmm. what would come from their life? The shows I have no patience with, the half-hour shows, is when all the sitcom characters talk like jokes from the comics writer's room, from the comedy writer's room. They just sound like jokes that anyone mm -hmm. could say then I tune out. So it's it's just a matter of like learning your characters and learning their backstory and their life and what's interesting to them and why they, you know, what they like, what they hate and what their point of view is and then find what's funny that would come out of their mouth. And it doesn't, and the more, you know, you have that, the less it sounds like a hard comedy joke. Well, doesn't that make you a visionary? Because a lot of people, that's why a lot of bad stuff creatively is done because there's such a disconnect or it's fractional. It's a, you know, it's diluted right from source. I mean, doesn't, you know, there's not a lot of people that can see that, you know what I'm saying? Like see that and something funny to a personality. There's probably a lot, there's probably a, a lot more people out there that can't see right. that. That's the trick, you know? Um, and that's where the successful shows come from are the people that can do that. The people that can uh -huh. find the inner life of their characters. Then mm -hmm. you're golden. You know, then that's the big key to what are going to draw people in. They they become friends with them. Even Futurama, where I was there for like six, seven seasons or whatever. And you got this big, fantastic, crazy world and interplanetary travel. But ultimately, it was about the characters and their dynamics and what's funny about them and their wants and their needs. And, you know, the, the, you know, Fry's always going to do kind of the dumb joke and and Bender's always going to do like, uh, I want to get drunk joke or, you know, um, mm -hmm. but people came to Futurama because of the characters and they became friends with the characters and they loved living in their, their world with them. Uh, uh mm -hmm. in other words, it just can't be like people randomly going on these space adventures and crazy things happen. That's almost secondary. It's like, what's, in, what are the small stories and what are the small stories with these mm -hmm. characters? You know, how many people on a project like that can see that? Or you do you use someone like you have to take the lead and sh show them how this works? No, uh, David Cohen, who co-created Futurama, was very smart and knew uh, he had to find people who thought that way. 
You know what I mean? So he, he can mm-hmm. look at a sample spec script and see, you know, well, this person's just an old school sitcom writer. You know, he he just went through the, the, the hiring process and was smart enough to pick out who would who would be the right puzzle pieces for the show. So it, it's up to the showrunner mm-hmm. to keep that, the showrunner creator, keep that voice going. Mm-hmm. It's funny, too, because sometimes you'll see like your favorite show uh, and then two or three seasons in, it kind of falls apart. That's because that creator usually gets a big offer for a big deal to go on a new show and then a new a new showrunner comes in and may not understand the voice of the show and then fans are suddenly like mm-hmm. why is my show weird now you have a goal the next three years what do you want to achieve this different in the next three years is there something you really really want to do i'm looking to see how much uh progress i can make in the comedy screenplay world i'm writing a really dumb comedy now that again is fun and the premise is simply uh Guy didn't pay his uh, his late fees on a VHS of Tango and Cash that he got at the Blockbuster. The guy that worked there has been stalking him all these years to get the late fee. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and that's just kind of the jumping point, uh, the jumping off point. But it just gets really silly and crazy, and it's just a dumb fun and it's funny one of the things i've learned lately is like as i talked about when you're writing stuff and you think about what will executives say and what's off and what's weird about it when i write something too much of the time i'm thinking about what will the market think of this is this a viable idea what are executives going to think am i on the right track am i and now instead i have uh, twin boys who are 21 and I know they're friends, so I'm writing now thinking, what would make my sons and their friends laugh? I mean, that's my that's where my head is. And uh, I think it's a much better way to go, you know, a healthier way. On a daily basis, you just go for your craft? Do you get up and you go to work? Do you write? Is this what you think about every day? <sighs> you seem very passionate. Well, I, I do tell people who are interested in writing that if they're not driven to write at least a few hours a day, then you're probably in trouble. Uh, and, it, mm-hmm. and that just means even if you're writing your own little essay or just tinkering around trying to write jokes or whatever, if you're not driven to write a few hours a day, then you're probably going to have a, a rough time unless you're some sort of genius or something. <laughs> uh, drive to, you know, it, it has to feel like kind of a drug. It's something you feel like you need to get done. You feel like you never do anything? You mean real life stuff? Well, it's just, it's like I work every day and I always tell my wife, I don't feel like I got shit done today. You mean as a you ever, you ever as feel a writer? It? You mean <laughs> you ever feel that? No, just as being in the entertainment business, you know, just kind of getting up and doing what you love to do. You have that feeling sometimes. You feel like, hey, you might have wrote for seven hours, but feel like you didn't write anything. Well, that's sort of not true. In a, in a way, if you're just staring out the window for a couple hours, figuring out yeah. what you want to work on or what you think would be mm-hmm. funny or what's interesting, and even if you don't write anything that day, you're still writing. If you're staring out the window, just trying to figure it out. In fact, it yeah. was sort of the first thing my wife had to understand of like so what do you mean you're going to go sit at the coffee shop yes i'm going to have my laptop open and i'm going to maybe figure something out or maybe not but that's just part of the process you know so your mind is probably going all the time it's it's part of why Mm -hmm. like i'm harder on watching tv shows and movies because if i could see the seams then I'm taken out of it and I can't enjoy it. So that's like when I fall in love with a movie, it's probably a really good movie because you don't see what's coming. You don't hear the writer writing, you know, it's just, you get lost in it. So then that's a really good, you know, because my brain is constantly, you know, it knows the formulas and the connections and why, you know, I make my wife crazy because mm-hmm. I'll go like, 
literally be like, on three, the baby cries. Three, two, one, and the baby cries at the funeral, you know. <laughs> a predetermined process, yeah. if you will. Yeah. You had a book out, uh, the funny thing, why comedy made you bald. What was the uh, tagline? Uh, how, the, how, how the professional comedy business made me fat and bald. Fat and, I don't yes. know that, but believe me, I'm uh, quite bald. Uh, but it it was it's this book I would recommend to people who want to get into business just to get an idea of what the journey is like, starting from the time you feel like you think you're funny to how to then move out of your hometown and then make it a real profession and make it a real business and and seeing how far you go and what the roller coaster ride is like. And it's really a tale of mm-hmm. like if I could do it, my, this little teenage kid from a small factory town, if I could do it, there's no reason why you can't do it. You know, part of mm-hmm. what holds people back is fear. You know, fear is the big deciding factor. Fear is the thing that keeps people from moving out of their hometown and taking the big swing. So it's it's kind of about if you can get past that or if you can fight through that, you find a very satisfying life on the other side you know but it's also something i wrote thinking of like what's a book i would have loved to have found when i was a teenager thinking about this life i mean it's it's never going to be a big seller though it's sold so many more than i ever thought it would but i i think it's a good just a good lesson on how anyone who's interested in anything big that they want to go for in life you can look at this journey and say okay here's all these roadblocks and here how's here's how this person got past it you know so even if it's like you're looking to be the 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 owner of your own company or your own corporation or you want to be president of your of this company whatever it is that you have you have these big goals it's like kind of saying don't be afraid just face the danger and go through it and it may not in other words it's almost like what could kind of hurt more is the regret of not fighting for what you want rather than the hurt that comes for fighting and getting some of or most of, of all of well you seem very very genuine you seem you know, it's, it comes from a, a very strong place. It's hard to find that. I've talked to a lot of people in the business, and I think you're very, um, very true artist. So may, hell, maybe that, maybe the book's the movie. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that's kind of the if that's the real life, maybe that's well, the movie. I, I parts of this book to write some pilots. Mm-hmm. There's a big part in here that people might be interested in. That when I moved from my hometown to New York City, I worked at a AV repair shop, and part of my job was to every couple of weeks go to Times Square in New York City and work on the projection equipment in the porn theaters. So I was, you know, thrown mm-hmm. into the underbelly of New York City as a, I was 19, 20 years old. And like my experiences in that world was, you know, um, so I kind of, I made, actually made a pilot out of that. As soon as I finished it, David Simon came out with a show called the, the 20 deuce of the, uh, the 40 deuce. And in fact, that was the same exact name of my pilot. The 40 deuce is 42nd street. And then it was, it was so close that I actually was able to get to David Simon and say, I live this life. I wrote a pilot about it. This is my world. I think it'd be great if you brought me in as a writer. And I just kind of fought for this. Mm-hmm. But he kept saying, there's just no way he could read my script because if there's similarities, then it's a problem. And I said, I'll get a lawyer. We can sign a thing. And it'd be, that was a little frustrating. But yeah, they're, they're, I, I, I will, I'm going to go back to it. In fact, uh, I, I don't know if you know Carol Liefer, a stand-up comedian who's been a friend for a long time. And I've worked on her half hour. I've heard the name. She had a sitcom right after she was a writer on Seinfeld and then had her okay. own show for a couple seasons. And it's funny. I just heard from her and she read the book just out of the blue, which is great. But she said the same exact thing you're saying. Like this, this book itself is, is a movie. We, we don't haven't really 
showcased heroes in a long time. I mean, it's American, somewhat of American hero type story, right? Guy from a small town showing his path and his career, you know, from a real perspective. It's educational. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's something no, I think to think you're about. right because it does have the honesty that I'm always searching for, you know. So I've been thinking about it. The best way to maybe <laughs> figure something out. Well, I've I've took up a lot of your time today, and I appreciate the conversation. My pleasure. Uh, I think we fun. I think we kind of dove into some different things, and that's what I try to do. I try to pull out these micro moments, kind of like your book, you know, about uh, a, a micro moment in someone's life. So if someone's ever listening to this in ten years, twenty years, they can learn something mm-hmm. from it. You know, and I think uh, because that's how we learn life, you know, our path of learning life is seeing how other people live. That teaches you the most about life in general, seeing how other people live and, you know, opens your perspective and everything else. So I'm trying to kind of capsulate that here in this podcast. I get that. Get the the book. It's a funny thing. If you want to learn about a, a true path in comedy from a great mind and great writer, Mr. Michael Rowe. Um, great conversation today. Appreciate you coming on the show. I'm John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.